Before we start with the show, we'd like to introduce you to Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Whether it be marketing, sales, customer care, or accounting, Clara is just what the doctor ordered. Any SME employee can tell you that managing internal processes manually and on paper is just about the silliest way of wasting your time. That's why Clara digitizes everything. An easier, hassle-free workflow means you and your company get to spend time on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. And now, on with the show. I like to solve problems, right? I, I love complex problems. Give me, give, bring them on. <laughs> Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Simon, uh, very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Sylvan. Today we're going to talk about your story, your entrepreneurial career. You are a su successful founder, you are a board member and also an investor nowadays. And I would like to start off with your personal background because you studied and you have a master's in mathematics, physics and also sociology. And that's like not the typical entrepreneurial <laughs> background. So in what way has that actually that background helped you to become an entrepreneur later? Um, it's a good question um, because I, I really picked my studies totally, you know, independent of what I would want to do. I, I wanted to study originally uh, information technology, but as I was working in information technology already, it was kind of too theoretical then. And so I said, well, if I do the real uh, let's go for the real thing, right? But if we're going for theory, then let's take the, the hard one. And, and so I switched to mathematics. Um, I never really worked in any of these disciplines, but, but still, I guess, um, the school, um, of, of, you know, in, in math that you, you have a problem and, and you just want to solve a very hard problem and to try to figure out how do you get from a position A to solve this hairy, big, hairy problem. Um, and, and how do you attack that? How do you analyze the problem? How do you see what options you have? This was kind of a, a school of thinking that, that helped a lot in, in all my endeavors. So I, I could use more than the math itself. I could use this kind of, of approaching a problem, right? And physics, I mean, this was, yeah, it's always good to know about physics, <laughs> which is kind of the base of nature. But this was really just out of interest. I just, wanted to know how, how our world works. And for that kind of physics is the foundation and sociology then was the, well, you know, the total complement on, well, let's do something that has nothing to do with logics. And to be really frank, I mean, we had zero girls in mathematics and physics, zero, zero, which kind of trained me. <laughs> so it was, I needed to be somewhere where it's not just guys around. So, and so I picked sociology, which, which of course helps a lot of, as well, because you, you learn to understand how do things work? How do 
societies work, how to deal. It, it, it's very close to psychology, if you want. And, and this, of course, helps in, in negotiation or dealing with people. Absolutely. Sounds like a very interesting package. And also, when reading through your LinkedIn reviews that people gave to you, and also talking to your peers, they say that you're incredibly good at explaining very complex topic in a simple manner. And I think that's probably the result of the three different studies to really be able to break it down and make it easier to understand. Yeah, it's, it certainly is. It certainly is because I had to move in very different contexts. Um, but I guess it's also a little bit based on how I earned my living because I, I you know, I was working um, during all my studies and um, paid my living myself. And what I did was actually I, I did computer courses. So I teach people in how to learn Excel and Word and SAP. <laughs> Got help. <laughs> Although I typically knew less about SAP than anybody in my course, but... However, Windows operating systems and all these kind of things. And, and there, I think I, I needed to kind of learn on how to deal with a very different audience, different ages, different backgrounds, and, and how to, you know, ha explain something that, that was not obvious to them. So this kind of getting into their shoes and seeing, hey, um, well, wh where does this guy start? And what does this mean if I want to actually explain something and not take as a given that everybody has had the same experience as you had? This was also a very interesting school for me. Yeah, And I'm sure also a helpful skill for your job and role as a CTO and board member at Unic. You spent seven years uh, at the company. And if you look at Unique and also our previous interview guests like Marcus Ockhamus, for example, <laughs> there's sort of this Unique mafia uh, where several startup companies and also investors uh, sort of emerged from, from that company. Yeah. So what happened there at Unique that you got this DNA and really many, many people chose the path of entrepreneurship after leaving the company? Mm -hmm. what, what did Unique do differently that this was even possible to have so many entrepreneurs and investors emerging out of that? That, it's a very, very good question. And, and I think it's, it's not, it's really not easy to answer. And maybe I can pick three, three possible reasons. One, of course, but probably every company will say that we really had an excellent bunch of people. So we were super lucky in picking extremely talented youngsters, uh, with a lot of potential. Um, which, and of course, also developed their capabilities. And, and, and then when they left, Unique wanted to do something else. I also think though that, and that's something I can recommend to, to, to everybody that, that starts a career. I think that the service business just teaches you a lot of things, you know? So when I, when I think back, we had to do all these projects and all the customers wanted to know how much does that cost? How long does it take? So you had to always be very aware. What do you do? How do you focus? What, what, where do you not focus on? Where can you maybe, where is it really important to be precise? Because they were pissed if it didn't work, right? Yeah. But where can you maybe cut a few corners because it's not that core? How can you stay within a budget and a timeline? How do you do that? How do you even evaluate that things? And this gives you a lot of capabilities that as an entrepreneur are fundamental. While if you were working maybe all the time just, just in, in corporates or product companies, it may be kind of different that you're just, you know, working on something without having these permanent constraints on. You just need to deliver then. And I think this was, at least for me, it, it helped massively to, to, to being able to actually say, okay, let's tackle something because I know how to do that. I know how to do projects. So, I started a product as I did with a project. I thought about what do I need to do it? What, what people do I need? How do I get it done? How, how costly will it be? And, and, and then we launched it. 
And third reason, I guess, um, I think we had a good culture in Unic to empower people, which meant that they were always involved in the processes that, that relied on estimating things, taking responsibility for the approach. It was not we as partners sold the project and then they just had to deliver, but they were involved from the beginning, which gave them kind of this entrepreneurial background, you know, in, in, into their, their very daily behavior. Right? And I think that that's maybe also a reason. They were already little entrepreneurs within the service company and just, you know, got to become great entrepreneurs afterwards. But I can imagine that having this you know, entrepreneurial spirit in a larger company that is not your own company directly, that is something that is incredibly difficult to achieve. Because many people, many companies, they want to have that culture, but very few actually achieve it. Yeah, it definitely is hard to achieve. But I think it also, you know, size matters a bit. So as long as it's not too big of a company, you still can have this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Otherwise, I mean, every time that the company maybe goes above 100 people or so, it starts to become really tricky. And, and I guess you can also see that, that many of these people that then turned into entrepreneurs, they were already there at early times, right? Where it, it's kind of really hard to to keep these mechanisms alive as, as, as soon as you grow. And then later on, you actually took the leap and became an entrepreneur yourself. You became founder and CEO of Milgram Media, mm -hmm. an internet venture incubator. And you also were a senior consultant before that. So what led you to take the, the leap and to actually, you know, plunge into entrepreneurship yourself? A good friend of mine, Heinet, which, which was also the CEO of Unic, um, we, we had frequent discussions. He was a smoker, so he needed smoking breaks. And we were standing outside and having some chats. And so once he said, you know what? Ah, this service business is okay and it's cool. And we're working on interesting projects. But ah, don't you have the feeling that you would want to work on something with a real business model? Meaning something that doesn't just scale with people, right? And this, this was kind of a starting point for a thinking process of, yeah, I really would want to do that. And we, we even tried it within Unique, but it, it, it just kind of didn't work out because it was too much of a services company and a product company just needs, it's a different DNA if you want. And ultimately, this was the main reason why I said, I, I want to try to build a product now. I have done services now for seven years. It was great. I learned a lot, but next thing for me is I want to create a product that can scale. And then I, well, created a consulting company, which makes total sense. <laughs> uh, you're still selling your hours, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the consulting company really was, was to just, you know, earn my living, right? So I never worked a lot there. It was always just, I picked the projects in a way that I always had spare time. And during the spare time, we then started to elaborate. We first wanted to build a health platform. I supported a friend of mine uh, on building his product company and so on. And then ultimately, yeah, the first venture we went into was then actually Milgram Media. And how did that happen then? I mean, what was the different business model that really made it attractive to you? Well, you know, we, we wanted to, to tackle a problem that we had found to be predominant in big corporations. Meetings are a mess. They're badly prepared. They're hard to organize. There's no minutes and so on and so forth. And we wanted to tackle that problem. That's also was the claim was mastering meeting madness, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so we found, yeah, that's, that's a great, um, that's a great product. We knew that this problem exists and, uh, we wanted to build a SaaS platform for big corporates to actually tackle exactly that problem, right? And have the right tooling, um, around, um, around this, this meeting complex to actually make them way more efficient, easy to handle with automatic minutes and these kind of things. We just did, well, I guess one major mistake when, when doing Miller Media, because we launched it actually as a B2C company. Um, we thought, we, everybody knows Doodle, of course, Mike Neff built, right. super successful. And um, we always thought, well, you know, Doodle is great, but it misses this kind of integration into the business tools. I would want to see all the, the dates that I picked also in my calendar to know I shouldn't, res- well, you know, and then automatically get an inv- information, the meeting and why as soon as it's confirmed. So we thought we just built a better Doodle and then automatically people will use it, right? Viral effect. Let's go big. And as soon as we have millions of users, then we basically create as an add-on the B2B function. And then we are already in all these companies and we can start to sell it. This was the plan. It just didn't work. Sounds like a very good planning theory, right? You yeah, think yeah. like, easy, yes. we know what we do and let's just uh, execute and we'll get there in no time. Yeah. As yeah. many plans, it was excellent in theory. Sure. But then what happened in reality? <laughs> um... Well, what happened in reality, several things. Uh, one thing was really a little bit unfortunate from a timing perspective, because when we started, Doodle also started to create integrations. And as, of course, they had kind of a massive use base. Our main USP toward against Doodle to, was, was kind of gone. We could still say, well, we have the nicer calendar and our exchange integration is better, but it's not like we have integration, they don't. So this, this went off. And the second big problem was that we, well, we just didn't do it right. We, we had a pain that we felt and we, we did the classical startup mistake, you know, of not doing enough user research. And it was just not a real pain. And people are very reluctant to change. So you have to be massively better such that they switch from a tool that they know and use and like. And so they just didn't switch. Um, people, we just didn't get traction, finally. That, that was the main problem. And um, it, it was really that we were so convinced of t- typical startup first-timer. We were so convinced of our own idea. that we thought, Everybody will love it, but nobody did. And we just didn't do enough research. So there was not a clear enough value proposition. There was not a clear enough need. And that's why we ultimately failed. And how do you actually you know, accept that sort of failure? How, how did that show? Did you shut down the company or what did you decide to do? Yeah, we would have to, um, well, actually, we, we, we basically ran out of money. We then, we did the switch to B2B because we also understood that on a B2C market, we are obviously the viral model is not working. And we were very, very close to get a big deal with a, with a Swiss company and a magnitude of close to half a million, which would have been a great entry point and, and start for the B2B part of the business. Uh, but then, well, they switched um, some, there, there was a restructuring. Our go-to guy was not in this position anymore. So it kind of went down the drain. And this was, this was the last nail in our coffin. And so, yeah, we, we, we decided to sell it. Uh, mostly because um, we didn't want to have the effort of ramping it down 
but it was really, yeah, it was like a warm lunch with my wife, more or less. <laughs> I always say it was the most expensive. It was my personal MBA, and I understood that I'm probably not the B2C guy, right? Yeah, but I mean, that's a fair learning. And yeah. you obviously, you know, applied the learnings from that case to your next company, to, uh, to Qumran that you founded in, in 2009. Yeah. And my question is, before we talk about Qumran in, in more detail, why do you not decide to stop your entrepreneurial career and say, this is like, just not for me, this is too difficult. I go back and be an employed consultant probably somewhere uh, and stop doing my own company. Why did you say, no, I continue. This is really the right way for me. What gave you that confidence to continue? Uh, well, first of all, it was fun. <laughs> so I'm, I was never the guy that liked if anybody tells me what to do. So uh, I, I, that, that's already coming from my parents, which was, an, you know, he was a carpenter. My father is a carpenter. Um, and, but he also has his own business, right? It was a small business, but he had his own business. And this kind of, of DNA, these genes, I had them as well. I didn't want to work for somebody else. Um, and then probably it was just, I was just, you know, I'm too much of a narcissist to admit failure. So I said, no, 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 no. Can't be true that I'm not capable of doing a product company. It has to be possible. Let's do it again. Um, so I didn't want, I wouldn't just want to, I knew that, you know, failure in startups is, is common. Most startups won't succeed. Um, that's well known. So we tried, we failed, we learned a lot. And I just said, no, that, that, that's not it. Let's let's do it again. Let's do it better. Let's let's do it differently. And I still had this idea of creating a product. I wanted to create a product. Period. And then you did with Kumram. Then we did. Yeah. Um, just to to name quickly what you did, um, I, I looked it up. So it's a fully compliant audit trail where you record every digital interaction securely and transparently for global regulatory requirements. Sounds good. Sounds uh, also a bit theoretical. So uh, maybe, you know, to give our listeners a, a better feel about what was like the, the exact product that you so desperately wanted to build? Well, the exact product that I so desperately wanted to build. Um, uh, that, yeah, however. So what was the product that we built? It, when we were built already at unique times, when we were doing all these e-commerce, e-trading and so on platforms, we also started at the same time to starting doing enterprise content management projects where there was a lot about archival and compliance. And we noticed there's just kind of nothing that connects these worlds, right? And, and so the underlying rationale was, well, the business is going more and more digital, but everything that deals with compliance, they still think world is documents. So... How do we breach that? How, 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 how bridge that? How, how can we combine or link these two worlds? This was kind of the underlying question. And the reason why I started this very product was that still while at Unique, this was one of the ideas I had on, on, on a product to create. And I created some early prototypes and some conceptual work. And later on, a client from Unique actually had this requirement. So it was not that you know, Milgram Media ended and then I was like in my bed and or in the shower and thinking, what could I do next, Simon? It was more of um, just uh, Jürg Trunigert, which then also worked with us in Qumran um, and, and, you know, um, just entered the team right after Matthias and myself. He called me and said, hey, Simon, didn't you think about this kind of compliance thingy for web channels? And I said, yeah, I did. 
quite a while ago, but let me look up the materials. And I sent him a copy and he said, you know, um, customer of ours, Suva, which was then our first Qumran customer, has this exact problem. Are you interested to talk to them? And that's what we did. We went there. We, I showed my ideas and they said, yeah, that sounds like a, a good approach. Let's do it. And so I just, you know, slipped kind of into that project. And luckily, from the beginning, I said, hey, if we do that, I want to make it as a product. And Tsu was just our first customer. Even if we build it for them, it needs right. to be decoupled. And we already negotiated to keep the IP and all that thing. And so this was then kind of the starting point. And then we had a product and we had at least one customer that's interested in. And that's how we started. Nice. And that's also completely way of approaching approaching the validation, as you mentioned before. Now you have a market pull because the, the client is approaching you and saying, hey, we have this problem. This is significant. We want to solve it. And not you saying, this is the best idea ever. <laughs> the market needs it. And then nobody uh, actually yeah. signs up. Absolutely. Yes. This was a first market validation, which doesn't mean that there are 120 other customers as well, but sure. still. And I was there we really were sure that, I mean, compliance was also because of the 2007 crisis. Regulatory requirements were tightening. Um, obviously, digital business went up. And we knew that sooner or later, somebody needs to tackle that problem. So talking about good timing, regulations like tightening up and having a digital solution ready, yeah. perfect timing. Yeah, yeah, we were really lucky. So it was uh, this was a lucky shot and and... And interestingly, you said, you know, the product you wanted to build. Mm -hmm. And it is, I think it never really was the product I wanted to build. <laughs> I, I never was into compliance for financial services company. If, if you would have asked me two years ago, is this the topic? You know, you get up every morning and you say, that's what I want to do. Then I would have said, no, of course not. And, and so... Uh, and, and this also stayed like that. We had a product and it was technically challenging and very interesting. We had a team and let's say the challenge of building a company with a great team, having a product, going international and planning an exit, which we did from the beginning, was what, what really motivated me and, and, and less the topic. So in that sense, I maybe not, you know, I'm not the actually what you should do as an entrepreneur, being totally passionate about what you build. Um, that's what, not what we did. So I'm, in that sense, we, we actually started totally wrong from the very beginning. But that's very interesting because often you say that, you know, you, you need to have this personal motivation, this, this passion for the problem that you solve yeah. in order to also stick through the hard times. Yeah. How do you manage that? Because I'm sure that you also had like difficult times where motivation oh, yeah. was an issue. <laughs> and if you're not motivated about the product or the solution that you're building, what kept you going in these moments? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. We definitely have the hard moments. I think what kept me going was, well, several things. W one was that with time, the problem started to attract me more, just simply for the fact that I knew more about it. And it's like with everything. If you gain some expertise in something, it starts to become more interesting. So this was one part. Second part was, as I said, the problem was technically challenging. And this was always something that, I, I like to solve problems, right? I, I love complex problems. Give me, give, bring them on. <laughs> and so I wanted to find a solution for these kind of technical problems. And this was, of course, something that motivated me. And third part, 
was certainly team. We had a real cool team. Uh, I liked working with these people. And I, you know, if I had kind of a, yeah, maybe mini depression or was not too motivated, one thing that kept me going was just saying, I don't want to disappoint these cool people I'm working for, which many of them were friends. And, and finally, I guess it was still, um, I absolutely wanted to turn this company into success because also maybe because it was not necessarily what I was totally passionate about from a content perspective, right? From a product perspective, I said, if I don't make this company a success, then I wasted my time in something that's maybe not my core interest. That's not going to happen. And that kept me going. What was that motivation? Of course, you want to have a successful company and also prove that to yourself that you're capable of doing that. But what were the other motivational factors? Was it also to create an exit and earn a lot of money? Or what was like the driver behind it? One aspect that I already mentioned is I, I wanted to just prove that I'm able to do a, build a product. Right. So, and uh, another aspect definitely also was money. Right. I always had this idea that I... I would want to have the freedom of not necessarily needing to work to decide really out of my heart what I wanted to do. And it was kind of a trade-off, you know, that I, that we decided, oh, I see the opportunity of doing this topic where maybe I'm not totally passionate about, but I'm passionate about building the company, yes, but not the product. Earning a money to, to then having the freedom of, of, you know, really focusing just on things that I would want to. And this certainly was also motivation. That's why we, we wanted to have an exit from the beginning. So let's also quickly talk about your co-founder, Matthias. Mm -hmm. You already worked together at Unique, but can you tell us a bit more about, you know, how you then found each other and actually decided to start the company together? Because being co-workers and then starting a new company together, that's like two different pairs of shoes. Yeah, it is. It is. It's just that, you know, Matthias, um, I don't remember exactly what year he, he entered Unique, but he, he quickly became also one of the cornerstones because he started to basically take over the project management team and, and structure the project management process. So we had, of course, a lot of touch points. We were working a lot together and we were working well together. We were very complementary. And that's something we, we, we already learned quite, quite early. So it just worked. It was just a good fit. And during that period, um, he just, he still lived in, uh, in Zurich, but, you know, worked in Bern. And so he needed a place to stay. And I had, had had space. So he often just, you know, stayed with us overnight. And we very quickly became good friends. And so it, it was then a personal relationship that, that we have that was actually the core of our, of, of, of then our the future businesses. We already did Denkplatz together, the consulting company. He left Unique more or less at the same time. We had a big uh, living community in Zurich. So we were five guys in a, in a huge apartment in Zurich where he was kind of the, the, the first, you know, the one that, that actually rented the apartment. We, nice. others then came up. So we, yeah, we, we were really, or we still are, um, very, very good friends. And, uh, we just knew it's, we work well together. Um, we have competencies that are, that, that balance each other's uh, pros and cons. Great. And I think then you also created sort of a, a master plan on the napkin that you told me uh, about <laughs> in our prep call. So then you basically said, okay, we want to, you know, create a successful company together. Yeah. 
how and what was the master plan that you created on that napkin? Well, the famous <laughs> napkin. <laughs> master plan is maybe a little bit a big word for what it was, but it was kind of um, also for Matthias. It was not that he said, "I want to spend." Um, you know, working in compliance for financial institution until I'm I'm retired. So also for him, it was it was an interesting venture to do, but with an exit goal. And so we sat together, we took a napkin, and we wrote down how long do we want to make this, and um, how do we want to do an exit, and 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 how much should we earn with that company. These were kind of the three key figures, and I um, totally lost that napkin. Um, he still kept it. And when we finally were able to, to, to sell our company and, and did a successful exit, um, he called me and said, Hey, Simon, I found that map king. Guess what? We, we are pretty much in line. So actually we, it took two years longer, but we also got like 30% more than we wanted. And so, um, it was kind of unbelievable when he showed it to me, the picture that he took from this map king. I said, Hey, Unbelievable. We, we, we kind of precisely hit that target. Yeah. Wow. And now I'm really curious to hear more about how you actually hit that target. <laughs> so as we know, with every startup company, yeah. there are many obstacles along the way. Uh, we already talked about, you know, the market validation. Then you had your first client, Suva. Yeah. But I can imagine with your specific product, you know, acquiring new clients, especially also big ticket clients, as it was in your case, that's like super tricky and also takes a lot of time to, to get a decision. How do you go about that and then, you know, expanding from your first client to, to more clients and actually grow the company? Mm. How do you handle that challenge? Well, with a lot of work. <laughs> um, yeah, how do we handle that challenge? I mean, in the end, it's, it's, it was classical B2B sales. Every, every sales pitch was a real project, right? I mean, we, we needed to go for big tickets because otherwise we couldn't just you know, have the effort. So it was clear from the beginning, we cannot do $30,000 deals. It just, it, it wouldn't pay out. And so we really went for the big corporates. Um, we just did a classical, you know, enter there, build a network and, and start to dig and dig and dig and dig, do a POC here and there until you actually get to the big project. So I think there was no... There's no silver bullet in that. We didn't do anything special than classical B2B sales. Um, it was hard in the sense that it, A, took a long time. Compliance was always involved. These are guys that do a lot of rules and regulations in the company, but they typically are not buyers. So they just enforce others to buy, which they don't like to, because in the end, you know, they just need to do something that doesn't necessarily create business value. And so that, of course, took a lot of um, convincing and, and uh, we also needed then in the end to add more components to provide business value to actually convince um, our customers. Yeah. And one more point, maybe what we've seen pretty early is that um, we needed to go international because if we have you know, if you are in a niche market and you only want to sell big tickets, um, you run pretty quick out of targets. Um, even though, of course, financial industry is big in Switzerland, it was, it was pretty clear that we need to go abroad. At Germany was difficult because of privacy. So we didn't manage to, to get a foothold there. And so we went to UK and, and, and US, which was super expensive, but, but in the end successful. Yeah. How do you handle that challenge? Because going international with a Swiss company early on to just finance that 
that's a big challenge that you have to solve on your own. Yeah, 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 it is. So we, well, not entirely on our own. That's, that's when Patrick Barnett actually entered the, the game. When we decided to go international, he, we brought him into the company because with his Outtex background, he just had a lot of connections into US market. He knew how to sell in US market. And um, he really also helped us massively streamline the story, you know, make it big, which helped a lot with investors um, because we, we did several investment rounds to, to get there. And I think without him, we wouldn't have managed to get um, A, to US, certainly not, and B, the valuations that we got, which, which basically helped us to, to raise enough money without diluting the company. And, and these were uh, major points to get it done. So I think without external funding, we wouldn't have managed to, uh, to go to US. True. You also mentioned the, the big tickets that you sell. Um, although this seems to be attractive, it can also be a huge risk because if you have a client that is probably converting to a paying client, but maybe not, this faces, like your company faces a huge risk. Yeah. I think you have been in a situation where you were almost celebrating like crazy because there were great deals coming in through the pipeline, but then things turn out differently. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about that challenge? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's exactly as you say. I mean, big tickets is great if you win them. Yeah. And, but it was a total up and down because every time you lose one, it's like, shit, no, fuck, no. We really thought we'll get that guy and, and we don't. So what do we do next? And the situation you mentioned was actually near uh, end of the year. I think it was 2014, um, where we, we really had three big projects at, at hand and they were really close, so close to being closed, <laughs> just so close. I mean, the, the ink was literally dripping. Uh, we had it all prepared and it was the overall volume was more than a, a yearly revenue, right? Wow. So this was massive for us. We said, hey, for the first time in our company history, we'll have a run rate of more than 12 months. We just have, well, next year's revenue is already there. And uh, finally, I can buy a decent Christmas present for my wife, which then unfortunately didn't happen. And all of these free deals just literally vanished. And for various reasons, one was really that... Um, in one company, they just um, uh, changed priorities. And so they said, yeah, we'll do it, but we'll now reprioritize it. It would just come later. So it wasn't going to happen. It then actually didn't come. Another was doing a restructuring process. So the guy that actually was responsible for our deal was gone. And the new one first wanted to understand uh, what are all these projects that the other guy had had. had. Well, what do we do with them? Do we really need them? So this was gone as well. And in the third case, they had a crisis which didn't have anything to do with us, but because of that, lost some money. And in the end, they said, hey, we have to halt everything because we first need to tackle that problem. And so literally within a few weeks, we just lost the year's revenue done and we're kind of, okay, if we don't find any cash, we're, we're, we're going bankrupt by end of February. And this was, yeah. yeah. And these ups and downs, they were really tough. And, you know, where you think you're, you're, yeah. 
my, my, that was especially hard for my family, I think, because sometimes I, I was at home totally energetic, euphoric, and I own the world. <laughs> and next day I was like, oh no, everything is going. No, we're just drive to the next wall. So these ups and downs were, were really hard to cope with. Yeah. How did you pick yourself up by losing three deals and what did you do then to actually not go bankrupt with the company? How did you manage this tough situation? Um, we really had to do an emergency funding round. Okay. Um, we, luckily, we had some, some friends that were, were willing to, to send some money. And uh, so we did just a small investment round just to, you know, to go over because we had still a few projects in the pipeline. Um, luckily, we were able to close these then so that we could actually secure the ongoing business. And so, but, but we really needed a, a like, uh, yeah, 400k um, funding round to just get over a few months. Right. Yeah. These are the, the startup reality, the challenges yeah. that you face as an entrepreneur. At the same time, every startup also faces opponents and supporters. I would like to talk and continue sort of with the challenges and talk about the opponents first. So obviously you also had competitors in that scape uh, in, in the same industry, basically. Yeah. How do you handle your competition? Because some of them, they probably offered more features than you or had a bigger team, raised more funding, probably. So how did you go about them and, and manage the competition? Yeah, I mean, we had, Luckily, we had on, on our product um, not too many competitors because it still was a niche bro product. So there were a lot of, of session recording tools which had way better analytics than we had when it comes to UX and these kind of things. But they were not able to, to you know, deal with the compliance requirements. How do you really store that stuff that it can be retrieved in compliant formats and so on and so forth? access rules, masking, GDPR compliance. And so there we had definitely an advantage. Um, and, and we were in a niche. But one thing that hit us hard was um, Glassbox, they were called by then. Um, they were kind of a spin-off of, of the guys that originally created Tea Leaf. And they really had a very good, still have, very good analytics on the UX side of things. And then they just saw that compliance is, is, is a topic and they, they kind of started to copy what we had on the web page. So they claimed we can do the same. And it was hard for us to prove that they can't, right? And, and their main argument was that, you know, we are not only doing the compliance part, but we, we are also providing value to the business with the UX part. So you can do both with one tool and you don't want to have two session recording tools, which is absolutely true. And so we then lost a few deals, uh, one big one with a uh, betting company that really hurt um, because of that, because they, they were able to, to um, sell more features, even though some of the aspects that they sold were not working, but the customer would just find out later. True. And to cope with that, I think we, we, A, we needed then to build a certain amount of features into the product as well that are, you know, creating business value, which makes it easier to sell as a combined sell. Um, we didn't need to be the best there, but just good enough to keep us in the loop that people on, you know, to, to get to a POC where we can then properly evaluate what's going on. And the other thing is certainly that we also, um, 
we were just in different markets, right? So we, we didn't see them everywhere. And so um, there was also a little bit of a split that they were very strong in UK. They were not really strong in continental Europe. We've seen them in the US, but this market is so big, you don't see them everywhere. Right. So it was also kind of a, of, of a geographic strategy on how, how to deal with that competitor. So you basically continued to find and to serve your niche, basically. Yes. Makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. Let's also look at the supporter side. You have very prominent investors like Ariel Ludi, also a former Swisspreneur interview guest <laughs> that invested in your company or yeah. also Investire that support you along yeah. the process. In what way have these investors helped you to really build a successful company? In, in many ways. Um, I mean, um, of course, they were coaches. And, and often if you're in your day-to-day -day operations, you know, you're just... You don't know. <laughs> You're just too focused on something. Yeah. To, to actually see the forest, you just see your trees. And, and, and there, of course, it was super helpful to have these kind of coaches to challenge some topics, to help refocus, to help say, Hey, are you really doing the right things? Help us, you know, eliminating things that are unnecessary. And of course, they have a huge network. Sure. So, um, this was something that helped us massively throughout all, all our times as, as entrepreneurs. Luckily, we were not 20 when starting the company, so we already had a lot of connections into financial services. As we did a lot of projects with Unique there. And so all of this, you know, people within our network, of course, helped us massively to, to get into corporates, to, to start a deal, to pitch a deal. Um, and, and this was extremely helpful. And that's also basically what you built over the seven years at Unique, where you built your own network that you could now also leverage for your own company, basically. And I think that's an incredibly valuable setup that you had there. Absolutely. I mean, that's one more reason to, you know, spend some time in a service company and get this experience. If you're in so many customer projects, and I've been involved in, in most bigger projects anyway as a CTO, so you just get to know a lot of people and cultures and how they work and what they do and understand a little bit how you have to pitch them. And this was super helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the, like, the recent days, like before you sold your company, you had about 35 to 40 employees. You had offices in Barcelona, Zurich, and also San Francisco. And you're 20 to 25 customers in Switzerland, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, looking at the ticket size, it actually is quite a lot. And you also just put yourself on the U.S. map by winning the first two clients in the U.S. And that's also the thing that eventually put you on the map of Dynatrace, the company that then acquired you. So now, of course, you want to hear more about how this whole selling process of the acquisition of Qumran by Dynatrace actually happened. Can you talk more about that, how yeah. that went down? I mean, Dynatrace by that time, they were actively looking for a company. I mean, Dynatrace is a, is a, is a fantastic uh, software stack. It's, it's amazing what, what they can do with if, if something goes wrong with this root cause analysis that you have. But what they were kind of missing is what has happened on the, on the client side. So they were not really seeing what did the user do? What, how, how was an error maybe presented to the user? What happened then? Could he continue or not? What, what did he enter in forms that it actually passed? So, so kind of the session replay stack was missing. And so they were starting to search for uh, session replay companies. And 
It was actually Patrick um, that was in US that met then uh, already one guy from Dynatrace, which was responsible of actually scouting companies. It was a total nice. pure coincidence, yeah. right? And uh, we would, I mean, they were together at a Congress and Artie just came to, to our stand. And he only did that because we were in US. So he just learned about us because we had customers in US. I think without us going to US, we probably would never have met Dynatrace. Yeah. And so he just walked over, started to talk to Patrick and say, hey, you know, I heard you do session replay technologies. Patrick had his fantastic sales pitch. <laughs> um, and, and, and then he was hooked. And so they invited us to Linz. Um, and I was first skeptical. What, Dynatrace, what? What were you doing? Why the heck would they be interested in, in our technology? Do we really want to go there? Patrick said, yeah, come on, it's important. So okay, let's fly there. And so we went to, to Linz. Well, I don't know if he took the train or flow. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, met the CDO, chief architect, entire really high, high, high up team. And they were just asking what we do and everything. And, and in the end of the meeting, CDO came to us and said, guys, I want to be honest, we want to buy you. I was like, okay. Did he expect that in the first meeting? No, no way. No. Okay. It actually, before we went there, we did a proof of concept for them, which was, which was remote. And the proof of concept was that we um, had to record the Dynatrace application, which, which was a massive, complex UI in the sense of how much they displayed, all with, you know, um, an SVG stuff, everything animated. So it was really a hard thing to do for a session replay tool. And obviously only two of the 28 tools that they tested were able to properly do it. And one of them was us. I think the other one was full story, not totally sure, but they just did a big um, investment round before. And so they were just too expensive, I guess. Um, and so we were, th that's not something we knew by then, obviously, but, but seemingly we already were the favorite when we entered there. And now for me, it was just, you know, get to know each other. And by then, when they were talking to us, they didn't disclose that they're in an active you know, process of searching for such a company, they just, we thought it will be kind of a strategic partnership in what sense. That's also why it kind of didn't make sense to me. I didn't know how this should work. Right. And yeah, then in the first meeting, it turned differently. And we knew that it's a different ball game we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you always wanted to sell the company, yeah. that the equity was your goal from day one, basically. Yeah. But still at a certain point, you know, when things get real, how do you make such a decision if you really want to sell or not? Is it just the price or what other factors play a role there? Um, yeah, price, of course, is an important factor, obviously. Um, I think there were several other factors that actually played a role. We, by the time that we met Diana Trace, um, some people in our team already thought, hey, we need to, to change something because... What we have seen is that as we needed to sell big tickets and we were a niche player, we actually should have gone global and not just US, but maybe other financial hubs. And if you have to build that up on your own, it's just massively expensive. And so we thought it would be a good idea to actually, you know, bring the technology to somebody that already has this network. So they were thinking on how can we manage to get there. There was also, um, this was one aspect. So it was not like 
it wasn't totally out of the blue on, on one hand. And, um, and on the other hand, we, of course, wanted to pick a company that, um, that meets certain criteria because we had a developer team and the developer team was used to work in a startup culture. So for me, it was clear that it needs to be somebody that has a good working culture. It needs to be somebody that has similar values than we have. Of course, we wanted to be sure that they take over our team, right? Even also the location. Luckily, Barcelona was a super good match for them, which was also one of the reasons. So, so I think I would not have sold my company probably to, to IBM because I would just know that this would not have been a safe haven for my developers. We, we really were family. And so it, it needed money was one part, but the other one, it just needed to fit. It, it needed to be a place where I wanted to work as well. Right. So uh, because I knew there will be an earnout, so I will work for this company as well. I don't want to work for a company that I don't like. True. Makes sense. One other important part that you mentioned before is that another competitor basically was too expensive because they raised too much money. That was just a hypothesis. I don't sure. really know where But it the case. sounds pretty plausible. Yeah. And in what way, you know, how did you do that strategically to always have enough money in the tank to survive, but also not taking on too much money that you get too expensive if somebody wants to buy and you cannot really deliver a return to your investors? Were these like strategic decisions and thoughts that you had or it just sort of happened that way? Nah, honestly, I think I would be bluffing if I'd say it was a strategic decision. No, we, we were really, uh, we were, we were cash driven, right? So we just, we just had our plans. Where do we want to go? We want to go to US. We want to, we also wanted to create a new product, you know, the, the social media governance product. And so we had some fine funding needs. And then we were trying to just balance uh, what's the valuation that we can get, um, how much dilution are we ready to accept, how long does it take us, and, and out of this triangle, um, that's how we actually shape the investment rounds. But it kind of, you know, strategic thinking of, oh, if we do that, maybe we are too expensive for No, we didn't do that. And of course, uh, one question that is interesting for everybody listening to the podcast is, for how much money did he actually sell to? Well, 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 um, that's something I, I can't disclose. We actually agreed with the buyer to not disclose these terms. But I mean, what I can disclose, as I mentioned, it was 30% more than we actually wanted to get when we were drawing our napkins. And it's enough to, to give me a lot of freedom to choose what I want to do next. Okay. So uh, we are curious to see what that will be. One last question on the M&A part. Was there anybody that supported you along the process? Because I know, you know, M&A processes, they take a lot of energy, a lot of time to actually, you know, execute. And you never know if it will work out in the end or not. You still have a business to run. You have, still have clients to serve yeah. uh, in, in parallel. Did you have any help from the outside to, to manage and support you along the process? Yeah, definitely. Um, we would not have been able to manage the process ourselves um, as we were building a new project. We had a lot of projects going, a new product. We had the existing product. And then also that, I mean, 2017 literally was hell for me when it comes to, to, to workload. Imagine, yeah. And, and uh, we were all rookies in that process. So we simply got the best M&A guy that you can on the Swiss market if you're a startup or a small, medium enterprise, which is Heiner. 
Heine Grüter, another one of the of the Unique bunch. Um, we worked together as a CEO. Uh, he was a CEO of Unique while I was a CTO. We worked together closely. And when he left Unique, he actually created a consulting company and very quickly specialized in mergers and acquisitions. And so he was our one man show that that drove us through the process. And this was uh, massively helpful. We would certainly not have managed to to close the deal without him, at least not for these conditions. <laughs> yeah, we, we've also had the pleasure of working with him. And uh, for me, it's clear, you don't want to have him on the opposite side of the table. No, you want to make sure not. that he's part of your team. Absolutely. After, after that, I, I mean, there were situations on the phone because he told me once, you know, Simon, if you want to, it, it doesn't matter what the other guy thinks. If you want to go, get through your terms, you just have to repeat things 23 times. And I was like, okay, Heiner. And then we were on the phone and the other guy came and said, you know, no, but this is too expensive. And then Heiner, let me tell it one more time. It's like this. Dam, dam, dam. Yeah, but you know, we could maybe possibly, let me repeat it. And I was, I had to really literally take off my, my you know, I couldn't keep my, my cell phone in my ear because I, it, I just suffered so much. Right. But in the end, he came through with his conditions. So nice. he, he was, yeah, it was super successful there. Yeah. Team up with the best in the business, yeah, I would say. That's what you have to do. And one very interesting thing is then afterwards, you mentioned the earnout. So you were staying at Dynatrace and worked for the company. Mm -hmm. And then the company eventually did an IPO in the USA. Yeah. How did you go through that process? Because that's also a very interesting development to be part of, I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we didn't, we, we totally didn't expect that. Um, for me, working as a corporate was, was uh, well, easier than I had thought of. Because Dynatrace had a culture which was, you know, um, giving us a lot of freedom. Most of all, because I was the only guy in Barcelona. Um, we could not do what we want, but we had a lot of freedom to, to creep our culture, our processes, the way of working. We just had a clear goal. We needed to integrate the software and starting to sell up and then also build some UX analytics tools, which we did. But, um, so for me, getting into the corporate world was, was a relatively easy process just because Dynatrace is a relatively easy company to work with. Um, of course, I still got gray hair about some administrative and sure. HR stuff, but well, part of the game, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and the IPO, um, to be frank, I, I, I didn't expect that. So we knew just because of the history of Dynatrace and because of Toma Bravo being an investor, that certainly eventually Toma Bravo will want to do something with the company, either sell it or, or, or make an IPO. But I was not in the inner circle um, involved of knowing about when this will happen, how it will happen, what will happen. We just heard, of course, you know, you always hear rumors if you're connected a little bit within a company. And we saw strange things going on and, and people that we worked with getting super busy. So we knew something is in the bush. But in the end, it was a surprise for me as well. But it was an interesting process then to get through and, and see what, what is needed, due diligences that happen there as well, what, what changes in a culture if you're going public, that suddenly things get more formal, you have to report more things that were very natural before, suddenly needs tooling. So it, it was more that what happened after the IPO that, 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 that felt different, right? In, in what way? 
I mean, there are just before Dynatrace was a super transparent company. We we knew everything about all the numbers, how, what is selling what, how is things going, how much do we earn, uh, all the decisions that that were going on. We had a lot of freedom. We didn't need to report hours and so on and so forth. So it was a private equity company, and we basically decided what to do. And and after the IPO, things got much more closed because they're just you know because of uh, inside deals and so on. You cannot disclose these things. And and so for us, we felt, or I felt, much less kind of close to, to the core of the company. And there were not a lot of more requirements on, on how, what do you need to report, what to do, which, which, which gave it a different feeling. Right? That's an interesting observation because taking a company public is actually also, you have to disclose so much more information than as a private company. Yeah. But it's interesting to hear that from the inside, the things turn completely differently to what you would probably expect from the outside. Yeah. I mean, we could then also access the information as soon as it was sure. disclosed publicly, but this is also after the fact. So typically before we had the information at our fingertips and we could use it to, you know, to change our business, to control our business and, and change decisions, take decisions. And then suddenly this kind of information was gone. And that was kind of hard. Right. And I can imagine also on a personal level, the IPO probably also made you happy for a second time <laughs> because most often you get paid in cash, but also in shares to a certain degree, right? Yeah, that's true. And we also had an earnout model with Dynatrace shares, which were so-called MIUs, Management Incentive Units, mm -hmm. on the private equity company. And we, when we went into that deal, we didn't know um, if and when eventually these would be tradable. And so while still being in my earnout, I got them commonly tradable stock, which is, of course, a good thing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. we had a good, good tapas party in Barcelona. Then. I can imagine. <laughs> so a double payoff, basically. Double payoff, if you want. Yeah. Could be worse. <laughs> so I think we covered the story from your early days of the different studies that you did until the exit and the IPO. Uh, to conclude this episode, we would like to hear more about your resources and gadgets. So are there any additional resources like newsletters, blogs, books, also gadgets that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, uh, yeah, of course. So books, um, let, let's start with books. Um, currently, I'm really getting into the topic of, of nutrition, exercise and all these kind of things. And there are just a few things that I, I love. So um, something that I can recommend to everybody is um, the 12-minute workout, a fantastic book about uh, high-intensity training. Um, um, the Calorie Myth is a fantastic book about, you know, eating habits and changing eating habits. Why we sleep. Oh, well, I could go Great on time. with books for, for Ian's and Ian's. Thinking Fast and Slow from Kahneman. There are so many good books, but, but maybe let, let's stop here. Um, technical gadgets. Not really. What, what I can recommend is more, um, you know, life hacks, maybe. Sure. So what, what I did in, in recent times and that I can recommend to anybody is really ramp up um, high intensity training, which has a massive impact on, on my body and, and well-being, which I do with Aurum. Um, they are here in Zurich, two locations, and also in Zug in St. Gallen. Super recommendable. Um, um, well, you know, first two trainings are free anyway, so try it out. I love to just train 20 minutes a week, and that's all I have to do, and, and it just has a massive impact on and my you body. need to recover for the rest of the yes. week. Yes, 
It's so <laughs> beautiful. For the first time in my life, I don't have a bad conscience about, oh, I have to do more. No, 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 Sam, relax. Just take it easy. And second thing I did, which is also life-changing kind of, is that I, um, I met uh, with Thorsten Albers. He has a, he's a nutrition expert, so he actually is a, is, a, is a doctor and focuses on nutrition. And me and my, both my wife and I, we did um, a test with him, so two blood tests with, um, you know, glucagon load. Um, and then um, he gave us really, and, and we also reported on the behavior, and he gave us recommendations about how to change our eating habits, which... Well, you know, when I started, I, I lost like six kilos in, in just two months without anything that's close to being hungry or so. So I, I, you would, so it, it's, it's fascinating. And these two things have, have completely changed my, my physical shape within the last year. So this is, uh, something that, that fascinates me and really makes me hunger, hungry for, for more of these kind of life hacks. Awesome. And I'm sure that we're going to tackle this topic in the second episode together where we talk about your time after the exit. And I'm sure that there are many, many topics uh, that we can cover there. Simon, thank you so much for the great stories, for the insights. It was a pleasure talking to you. And we are very excited for the second episode. Thank you, Silvan. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. And yeah, totally looking forward to have the second episode with you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.